Everybody needs people to encourage them because there's so much darkness. I'm living to be that kind of story. Hello, and welcome to the Shiftmakers podcast, where we share the collective wisdom some of our greatest minds have to offer. I'm your host, Marianne Schnall, a writer and journalist. Over the years, I've had the incredible honor of interviewing a variety of remarkable changemakers, and it is my pleasure to share some of these recordings with you for this podcast. Welcome to Shipmakers. Following her landmark testimony during the Clarence Thomas hearings in 1991, Anita Hill became a trailblazer and a leading figure for women's rights in the fight against sexual harassment and gender-based violence. Three decades later, in the wake of the Me Too reckoning, we have mounting evidence that these issues remain pervasive and epidemic. In her new book, Believing, Hill documents the devastating collective impact of gender-based violence, as well as the intersectional issues of race, class, and power, which remain as urgent to address as when she first testified. I'm thrilled to share this illuminating two-part conversation I had with Anita, where we discuss her new book, her personal journey, and the paradigm shifts she most hopes to see in the future. So wonderful to speak to you again, Anita, and thank you so much for this really important, inspiring, and timely book. I am so glad to share it. I mean, in some ways, I'm unhappy to share it, but but it's, I really feel like it's important for people to understand um, the issue and that we can really do something about it. Why did you decide to write this book now? And what are you most hoping that readers will take away from it? Well, you know, I hear from thousands of people over the past 30 years. And I know that for a lot of people, their stories have been shared with me. And that's really a huge responsibility. Their questions have been shared with me. That's another responsibility. And I really wanted to answer their questions as well as to understand my own experience, where it fit in this whole era today of Me Too and Kavanaugh hearings. And so to just take a look at, has anything actually changed since 1991? Fortunately, yes, things have changed, but not nearly enough. So I think it's time to talk about and celebrate what has changed, including all of the movements that have occurred to support survivors and victims, all of the research that has been done by academics in particular, all of the advocacy, as well as, unfortunately, all of the new information about the breadth of this problem. So all of those things really have Some are encouraging, some are entirely discouraging when we start to look at the numbers, but all of it points to the fact that this could be a moment where these things come together, we can actually do some change that everyone will know. And so you won't have people asking that question, have things changed at all? And one of the things I think that sometimes just connected to making change is sometimes these issues feel like people don't understand if it hasn't personally affected them in some way directly. So obviously, in addition to the, you know, harm that gender-based violence does to, you know, its survivors, what are sort of the larger implications and impacts on a collective and societal level? Like, why should everybody care about this issue? Well, first of all, I think people don't know 
that this has affected them. I think it's almost as though it's become so, so normalized that people don't even know that problems are happening in their workplace or that problems are happening in some of the institutions that they belong to. It could be places of worship. It could be you know, problems at, at the museums that they attend. And we're starting to realize that you know, just about every institution in this country has been affected, private and public institutions, happening in our universities. And one of the reasons that they don't think that this is happening to them is, as you say, they're not direct victims. But the science tells us that when people are victimized, that it impacts all the people around them. So if we take, for example, bullying and harassment in schools, that shapes the minds of young people, even though they're not the immediate victims. So you're impacting the lives and the future of these children. And I've given examples of that, including the one involving Mitt Romney when he was running for president a few years ago about some behavior that his classmates remembered years after. It's really offensive and harmful. And we don't look at the economic costs as well. So uh, when Someone is being harassed in the workplace, for example, productivity is lowered, there's absenteeism, and that affects all of the coworkers. Reputations are lost, business reputations, so it's harder to attract good people to these locations, as well as retention. So we know economically there is a cost, even to individuals within the workplace, but there's a cost to the larger economy as well. And one figure that is really startling is this figure around intimate partner violence. The one figure has it that 10 million people in this country have been victims of, in some form or fashion, of intimate partner violence. You know, we're talking about family violence now. Over a third of those people will become homeless. That has an impact on housing, uh, social services, um, that, you know, really do drain communities of resources. So those are some of the societal issues and, um, and impacts that have just been ignored because uh, we just tend to think of these problems as personal and private problems, mm-hmm. as opposed to problems that are affecting our friends and and children, perhaps in, in their schools or their colleges and universities in our workplaces, our colleagues, in our neighbors, in our, throughout our neighborhoods, and, and with people in their homes. All of that really mounts up mm-hmm. a, a national impact. And the one real national impact that I think we are ignoring is what's going on in the military. A truly ghastly incidents that occurred at Fort Hood and the rates of Uh, violence there among the enlisted people in that community, that to me, when it comes down to it and we think about it, that kind of violence within our military forces Mm -hmm. is a risk to our national security. Mm -hmm. Because when you put enlisted people in harm's way or don't protect them against harm that you know exists, Mm-hmm. then national security suffers. People won't want to, good people won't want to enlist. And, and good people will leave. And we know that from all of the reports 
from um, CBS has done a great report, great reporting on it. All of this tells us that we got a problem. We have to get our arms around, measure, assess, and understand. And then just one more thing about assessment. There was a letter sent to GAO, Government Accounting Office, about the costs of sexual harassment in the workplace, sent by Senators Warren, Patty Murray, Senator Feinstein, Gillibrand, all joined together. Tell us what the cost, the economic cost to business is. And the response was, we don't have it calculated. We know that there's problems with productivity. We know there's problems with retention. We know that you know there's waste that comes from so many suits that have to be filed and, and resolved. But we haven't really put the numbers together. That's really a shame. We should know that. The government's first poll about sexual harassment in the government alone was done in 1980 or so, 83, I believe it was. And we still don't know how much it's costing us. Those are the things that I think we need to be aware of and say, why isn't it a priority for our government? Why isn't it a priority for our business? I think the deep dive that you do in this book is so important and also how you look at everything with all the layers and intersections. And one of the things I wanted to also ask you about is we know how many issues and problems are compounded when you take into account race. So how is this problem of gender-based violence different or exacerbated for women of color? Two ways. First of all, we know that the rates are higher. And we know that the reporting is probably not as high. That's, I think, a result of a couple of things. One, there's a sense that, especially if women of color are bringing complaints against someone else who is a person of color, then there's a hesitancy to report because of bringing down the community or impacting the career, if you're in the workplace, of someone from your community and the sort of hurting the kind of inclusion that we're trying to bring to workforces. So that's one thing. And we also know that making a complaint against one can lend itself to stereotyping. Well, that's what those people do. And so there is that danger, a sense of self-silencing because of that. The other issue is that many of our systems, and this is the system's problem, have just been so racially hostile historically that people don't trust that they're gonna be treated fairly. The research shows that as well, that white victims and survivors fare better than people of color with the systems that we have. That doesn't mean that white women are doing well either. It's just that there's this added burden when you bring in race or sexual identity into the equation. The systems are not built for any of us, but they also have to be checked and assessed and measured for how they are perpetuating racism as well. Mm-hmm. And I think business hasn't really taken that into account at all. And, and unfortunately, you know, the government hasn't either. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're not gonna get to what I think we our goal is, is to make sure that all women are protected from gender-based violence, all individuals. Mm-hmm. are protected from gender-based violence. And we can't get there without dealing with the issue of racism. 
whether we're talking about the private sector systems or the criminal justice system, certainly there is bias in the way that people of color have been treated. And until we can root that out and address that, we can't expect that people are even gonna come forward, much less get a fair opportunity to be heard. Season two of Shift Makers was brought to you by the Shift Network. Shift offers courses, programs, and workshops to unlock your full potential through transformative education and media with like-minded allies who are called to create a better world. Visit theshiftnetwork.com to learn more about their online courses, summits, and events. I know you wrote this book a while ago, but there are some things happening in the moment that I just, in the context of even what's happening with women and girls in Afghanistan, just thinking about these issues globally, because that is a reminder, not that we need reminders of just what goes on around the world and honor killings and child marriage, all of these different issues. What does that signify to you on a global level? And I guess, what does it say about the state of our consciousness, almost like the evolution of humanity, that women are still treated as inferior and don't have equality, safety, or equal participation, you know, at this year in time? Well, those are big questions. Let me go back to one, the question you raised before, though, about race. I hear from young women of color who say they cannot complain because they don't want to shame the race. But I also hear from young men of color who want to be partners and allies in this circle, Mm -hmm. but their fear is the stereotyping. Mm -hmm. So what is happening is really race is weighing down this conversation in our community. Mm -hmm. And until we get done, we can address the racism as part of the problem, then we're not going to be able to elevate the community, to lift the community. In terms of how do we think about this? First of all, I wrote the book and I did decide that I was going to focus on what happens in this country. Mm-hmm. Because I think in order to really address what's going on around the globe, as we become part of what is happening to women in Afghanistan and women in other countries, really, where they're experiencing extreme oppression, we've got to clean up our own house. We have to be an example. This isn't in the book, but when Brown versus the Board of Education was decided, it was an amicus brief that was was filed saying we've got to end segregation. And it was filed by the Department of State because it said this is a black mark, certainly no pun intended, on this country. If we can't fix our problems of oppression in this country, we can't be a leader around the world. And that's why I've started with home. You know, you've got to clean up what's going on in this country. Uh, And we're not close there yet. But what we do know is that some of the things that keep women oppressed abroad is the same kind of thinking that's been built into our own systems. Mm -hmm. That certain men, for example, important men, men who make money. I give the example of a professor in an academic institution that brings in lots of grants and lots of contracts and supports the the school's programs, that that person can get away with things because money is a priority and it's a scarcity in these 
locations. And, and what that says is that we value women less than we value money and institutional reputation that we are leading in certain research areas. And that's evidenced by the statistics as well. So we have to figure out what our priorities are. Are we going to prioritize institutional reputation, this false sense of institutional reputation? Are we going to prioritize money coming in from foundations or the government? Or are we going to prioritize what I think is our most valuable asset, the human beings mm-hmm. who are being put at risk, not only for their education, but for their health and well-being inside these institutions. And that's exactly what's happening in other places. When we fail to value women, then the systems allow abuse. They protect abuse. And one extreme example, perhaps not so extreme really in this country, is what we've seen very much lately with the situation in Michigan State Mm -hmm. and Larry Nassar. You had the FBI really turning their backs on claims that were brought to them by victims, the Olympic gymnast athletes specifically, because for whatever reason, they either put, and and it's hard to know what the reasoning was behind it, but the FBI just dismissed their claims, even though there was a credibility in the numbers of complaints that we're getting, the stories that they were being told were just wretched. Mm -hmm. They dismissed their claims, prioritizing maybe Michigan State's position or reputation or Maybe they were prioritizing Dr. Nasser. Uh, in fact, in one claim in specific that I talk about in the book, a young woman claimed to the local police and the officer in charge there said, well, we had this woman making complaint versus this well-known physician. Mm-hmm. And so we just gave him really the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. What does that say? That means we're not valuing women. We're not valuing women's words, and we're not even valuing them enough to put in place systems Mm -hmm. that allow them to be heard, give them a chance to be heard. Mm -hmm. So that's at the core of what I think the reform has to be. It won't work the same throughout the globe. We can't go in and impose our own culture on everyone, but we can work to understand how are the systems working there, what cultural factors are are, are allowing them to leave women or put women at risk or harm, and how do we change the course of lives knowing that the problem is a combination of cultural problems as well as systemic problems. In the book, you talk about how you likened being flooded with the letters and accounts from survivors after the Clarence Thomas hearings to the millions of women offering their stories after the B2 you know, movement went viral. Would you have expected 25 years later to have been farther along? And even though, as you said, they're maybe we're making progress, what, why do you think it is so slow? What is it that's kind of really delaying real progress here? The problem is vast. 
we know is fast and it's systemic and it's culturally based. We don't like to think of that in our country because we compare ourselves to other countries that have honor killings. And we think, okay, well, we're not that country. Mm-hmm. But it is still culturally based. The devaluation of, uh, of women is still culturally based. And it's built into our systems in the same way. So that's, that's one thing. And people look at it and say, well, it's like boiling the ocean. How are we going to deal with it? We also try to privatize it and say, okay, no, these are personal issues that people are having. This is not anything that hurts the public. So it allows us to just not do anything. But also because there is a certain level of denial. And some of it is outright denial. You have people like George Will, who has said that the statistics about campus rape are sort of made up as some kind of feminist agenda to claim victimhood. You've got those kinds of denials, but then you have the denials of people that want to minimize and, and say, well, the behavior is not that bad. It's not so bad that we want the law to intervene. And we have that even in our court cases today, where some egregious behavior, physical as well well as verbal, has been dismissed as stray remarks, as opposed to violations of our civil rights. One really heartbreaking story came to me this week, and this isn't in the book because I just read it this week. It was about a little girl. It was from Girls Inc. And it was a letter about why Title IX is so important to protect students from sexual harassment. And this little girl writes, my first experience with sexual assault was in first grade. I told the teacher on him and she took away my recess to punish me for being inappropriate. So what we have done is we've allowed what it was in this case would be called retaliation. And the work that we've done with the commission, uh, Hollywood Commission, shows us that there are still three reasons that people don't come forward. Now, first of all, let me just think about this little girl. Do you think she's going to now be going willing to come forward if something else happens or something even more egregious happens? That, that she's already it's shaped in her head that she will not be taken care of and the fact that she'll be punished. So now when we do our research uh, on entertainment workers and what their sense is about accountability mm-hmm. for the problem. What we find is that they don't come forward. One, they feel they won't be taken seriously and that there will be no action taken. Two, that they will be retaliated against like this little girl was for coming forward. And three, that Somebody will do an investigation and find that there was a problem, but nothing will happen to the person because the person is more powerful than they are. So what we still have is, I call it almost like a pipeline of grooming people to tolerate abuse. And it happens to the victims, but it also happens to abusers because they're being groomed to expect that their abusive behavior will be tolerated because it has been in the past. Yeah. You know, you talk about culture and how we raise men and boys um, to perpetuate this behavior, that this is how you act if you're a man. How do you see that sort of fitting into the equations in terms of these kind of really constrictive 
damaging notions of, of masculinity and what can we do to change it? How does that fit in? Well, I mean, the, the counterpart to saying that men, in order to be men, they have to be aggressive and controlling. The counterpart is that women are expected to be passive and accepting, no matter how bad the, the behavior is. Then they're supposed to accept the idea that it wasn't that bad. So I think what that does is that it leaves really both parties at risk. And unfortunately, we don't talk about the risk that not conforming to this hyper-masculinity concept, uh, the risk that they take by not being that kind of guy, that man who's, you know, willing to duke it out or to, you know, the man who is willing to show emotion is penalized. And uh, I give some examples, the um, example of Jonathan Martin and uh, Richie Incognito of the Miami Dolphins. And that's a, you know, I, I go back to some of these instances that we've had in, in our own culture and, and have been part of our conversation. But I want to go back to them, like the Mitt Romney, with new insight on what is happening in those instances. And basically, both the Mitt Romney incident and the, the incident with the, the Miami Dolphins football team was that that of controlling the behavior of an individual to make them conform to really dangerous and toxic kinds of ideas about what it is to be a man. And that can result in violence against men. One in every six men are boys, men and boys say that they have been sexually violated. It's typically from other men, not always, but typically. And so what we have to, to examine really is our own concepts of masculinity and gender roles and what that means that we accept in men, the kind of behavior that we accept, which is we accept certainly much more abusive behavior in men than in women. But I'm not trying to say we should elevate the uh, level of abuse we ex expect from women, but we have to check the level of abuse in the name of masculinity that we accept in men. Thank you for listening. And please join us next week for part two of this incredible conversation. Shiftmakers was created by Marianne Schnall and season two was developed by Joy Donnell. Story producer and editor A. Kirsten. Research assistant Angela Joshi. Some audio mixing by Timothy Dixon. Special thanks to Emiliano Limon. For more information about this podcast or our host Marianne Schnall, please visit marianschnall.com.